So we have the Carrie Fox Metoyer story today. Thank you for being on. Thank you for inviting you, me. You flew all the way in from where? Nashville. Nashville. Okay. Yes. Thanks for being here. So tell us who Carrie Fox Metoyer is. Let's start from the beginning. <laughs> okay. So I grew up in Orange County, California, and I, I, at an early age, I knew I loved music. And I think we all did when we grew up, right? We listened to the radio and we uh, went to concerts and, you know, I guess I, I went probably younger than most, but I went to concerts. And how, old, how old were you when you went to your first concert? I was probably 11. Wow. That's early. That's young. It was... Uh, Brian Adams. I think especially going early for back when we were growing up. Today, right. I think it's more common. But right. back then, like, there's no way at 11. Right. That's, that's young. 11, it was young. So it was and Brian Adams. Brian Adams. And I want to say, like, Night Ranger or something like that. Okay. So, um, but what really, like, the moments that I remember as, like, pivotal for me, I remember listening to the radio. And I remember the, the DJs saying, you know, right now on the phones is... And this guy, Wendell, was on this radio station, KLOS, and um, call him and request your songs. So I, I was about, I, maybe I was 17 at that point, and I called this guy at the radio station. I said, how do I get your job? Like, that's the job that I want. And he goes, just call the front desk of the radio station you want to work at and tell them that you want to do, you know, do this. It's volunteer, but, you know, it's really cool. So I mean, I was 16 or 17. So there was this new radio station in town, KNAC. It was a metal station. So I'm a metal girl, if you don't know. Okay. And um, that's the scarf representing. That's, that is the scarf representing. I like it. And, um, and I called and I said, hey, I want to volunteer to answer your phones. And they said, come in, talk to us. So I went in, actually got the job. I became a phone fox was our names and it kind of started my career in the music industry doing that just not knowing what I was doing but just doing it and having no fear or risk or anything so that was really the start of it and the people the artists that we got to meet the the events we got to go to at that age was mind-blowing so who are some of the artists you got to meet oh if you go to my Facebook page You'll see it all. It's there's a whole album of it, but um, Tommy Lee, like Motley Crue, Bon Jovi, like every big artist at that time would come into the studio. That's cool. And at the time, we were so small that they let us. They would send us to concerts, so they'd put us in the the radio van, and we would go to the concerts, and we would hand out stickers, and we usually got tickets to the show, to the party afterwards. You know, it was really for. The age, it was a crazy, awesome job. It didn't pay anything, but it was a crazy, awesome job for the for that time. And um, at that led me into going and getting in the van and going to in stores. And you know, back in the day, you would go to a record store and an artist would sit there and sign autographs for their fans when a record came out. So we started doing that, and I ended up at Tower Records one day, um, and they were hiring. And so I thought, hmm, maybe this will this will be my next, you know, something into music. And I got hired to count records. I'd show up at six o'clock in the morning and I would do inventory at, you know, and it was this like temporary thing. 
And that kind of, then the bug hit. And I was like, okay, now I can make money doing what I love. And so that led to, I, and that was kind of my first entrepreneurial like insight because I ended up kind of building my own job at Tower. I said, I'm really good at in-stores and I know the radio side and let me be the uh, in-store promotion person. And they actually said, okay. You created the job. I created the job. That's cool. And how old were you at this time? I was 18. 18, wow. 18. Young, young. And um, so that was, I had. I was there for about three or four years. I ended up obviously meeting all, doing the in-stores and working with the record labels and and promotional kind of marketing piece of it. Um, and I met my husband there, uh, which was amazing. And um, I, you know, started to build relationships with the record labels. One day, one of the guys said, hey, do you want to make some extra money and count records for me, you know, Capital Records? And so after work, I'd go out and I'd count his records and do his inventories. And that eventually led to my first job at a record label. So uh, and and again, it I've have this trend of having finding a niche, even in a corporate role sure. and building new roles or or suggesting new roles to help processes to build better business practices, things like that. So um, while I was at EMI, which was the parent company of Capital Records, um, I ended up in two or three like new roles. So was it, did that come naturally to you to create these roles and see where the gaps are? How, it really how did. You did. Start that? It was it was really about because um, I started my first job at a record label was going out and putting up posters at record stores. So I'd have to go out, get on a ladder, build a display, you know, count records, but also take artists around and have them meet people at record stores, give away free music give away concert tickets. Like it was, it was a great job. And, um, but you know, as I went through that, my brain was always like, how can we streamline this? And this is before computers really. Sure. It was almost be- it was right at cell phones. So how, how can we do Ooh, a sorry, better what, job? What year is this? So this is 2000, no, down 2000, 1991 okay. is when I started. Okay. 2000. Yeah, I was like, computers were around uh, in no. 2000, Y2K. Uh, 91, 91 is when I started at EMI. And um, and because the business was growing at the time, music industry was growing, we were still had vinyl, CDs were introduced, um, there was a need to start building new processes. So, um, so I, automation started setting in. Automation started setting in, um, you know, the... The idea of super fans and regionalized success was really becoming more apparent. And then data was starting to be available for, you know, radio stations and what they were playing and where music was being sold. And so, um, so I ended up with two, um, two or three new kind of roles that, that were rolled out. And, and I really liked that. I really liked like building it, you know, and, and understanding the success there. So, so this is what's interesting. I think a lot of people think that to be an entrepreneur, you have to create something from the ground up. Mm-hmm. My definition of an entrepreneur is just somebody that can take something and make it better. It's a, it's a lifetime problem solver, mm-hmm. right? So you're, you're making other people's lives easier. So you don't need to create something that you founded. You can go into a company, an organization, and go in there and create something 
that makes that organization better. That's being an entrepreneur. And the other thing I would say is being an entrepreneur is escaping a thousand deaths. Because (laughs) when you're entrepreneurial, you're, you're going for the, you're going for the gusto. You don't even, you don't know what's going to hit you day after day and you embrace it with passion because you love that entrepreneurial spirit. So it sounds like you really love this entire process of being in the music industry. I did. It was, um, I felt like it was, for me, it was a lifestyle. I mean, you talk to anybody in the music industry, it's really a lifestyle. You've chosen that. So as far as the money, because you you already mentioned that you weren't making anything when you were Mm -hmm. in your your teens. Were you doing it more just that passion, that drive and what's to come later and the money was kind of secondary? Or how, how, how did you view that? It was so early on at EMI, the money was low. You know, it was, it was entry level to, you know, to be fair. Um, and I had a family as like part we didn't touch on, but I was a teenage mom, okay. and, you know, so I already had kids. I was probably, I think I was the only one in my office at, at the record label that had kids at that wow. point. So money was important. If you don't mind me asking, how old were you when you had your first child? Um, I was 17. 17, young. Yeah. Young. Okay. So that made, that had you grow up quick. It did have me grow up quick. Wow. And um, so money was... I had to make decisions based on the money, sure. But it never, it wasn't my my success and my promotion at EMI wasn't about the money. It was about the passion to to find out what was next. Sure. Um, I actually did. There was one point where I got offered a job um, inside the company that I ended up having to pass on because they were it was a temp job for six months with no insurance, um, and and for a long time I regretted that I couldn't take that. I couldn't take that risk. Um, the person that took that job ended up doing great things. Mm. And I'd kind of watch with jealousy yeah, yeah, yeah. that success, but knew that I had done what was right for me and my family. So um, it was, money was a little bit, but it, I also loved what I was doing. Sure. I knew I could probably make more money going somewhere else, but I wouldn't have loved the job. The significance wouldn't be there. Exactly. You'd take care of of the of the need to have the income, but the significance and just your daily drive and your reason for doing what you're doing, just when it, it'd be, a, there'd be a void there. There would definitely be a void. And it was, you know, I, I was putting out a lot for my, you know, I was away from my family a lot. I worked in Burbank. I lived in Orange County. So I had a two, basically a two hour drive every day wow. plus. Um, and we were out at night, you know, we had, there was some nights, um, that, and this is still true in the music industry, but you could be, you have, you would go to three shows in one night, you know, because you had so many artists that were touring or, you know, out doing things. So it it was, there was a, there was definitely a balance that I was trying to meet, but, um, we, about two, let's see, 1997, um, I got an opportunity with our Christian label group. Um, they, we were doing some work with their artists in Orange County and we were looking at these bands that were punk bands and ska bands and rock bands. And we were actually marketing them as just artists, not Christian artists, but just musical artists. And, um, the Christian, um, the Christian group kind of took notice of that and said, Hey, would you be interested in talking to us about coming to Nashville and working our, helping us build our Christian acts into the mainstream, you know, just really, making them more accessible. So this is Nashville calling. This is Nashville calling. Okay. I flew out there late July of 97. I interviewed 
and I turned around and got back on a plane. So I wasn't even there a full day. And I went home and I told my husband, I was like, let's go to Nashville. Wow. So uh, it was it was one of the most pivotal things I did in my industry. So you in, go from heavy metal <laughs> did. to now Christian. I did. I was in LA. I'm working with the Beastie Boys and Megadeth and Spice Girls and, you know, and I decided I'm all in. You know, it was really, but the bands. What was it? What said, this is me, I'm all in, let's go to Nashville. What was that? What was that trigger? It was a handful of things. Um, it was, at the time, the CEO of the company, I just adored. I thought, great human being. Um, it was also my daughters were, my oldest daughter was getting ready to go to middle school. Okay, so how many kids now? Two. Two kids. Two okay. girls. Two girls. Yeah. My middle, my oldest daughter was getting ready to go to middle school and we would pass the middle school every day, taking her to elementary school. And I just, I would be like, I don't want my daughter to go to that school. Mm. Like it just, it, I, it wasn't a bad school, but it was just scary. It, sure. To me, it just looked, it just felt scary for her. In what way? Um, the kids looked big and it looked a little rough a little and intimidating. it was very intimidating. And, um, so I think that was one of the, the reasons. And then, it, and this was the money, right? Living, getting to live someplace that was more affordable, someplace that, you know, we would be able to buy a house, you know, afford a house. Um, and so we packed up and moved and I ended up my, at my very first talking about culture shock. My very first, um, maybe it was the first week they had their company meeting and it, the, the meeting opened with a worship band playing and they prayed before the meeting. So for me, that was very, very different. Sure. Um, but it wasn't pushed on me. It was, it was the, the atmosphere was very embracing. Like that's the only way. Um, you know, and I, I, when I, before I took the job too, I asked the question, it was like, do you have other religious, you know, people of other religion in this group? Is there, you know, I just wanted to make sure I was going to be comfortable with the environment. And, um, they're like, yeah, you just, you know, join where you want, don't where you don't, you know? And, and so it just, it all around felt so great. Um, I ended up, so it was a culture of belonging, not fitting in. You exactly. could belong there with your authentic true self. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that was, I think that is my friends were like, what are you doing? Yeah. And I was, and I just, I knew, I felt like it was good. It was a fit. So, and the CEO um, of that company who's since passed, but he became uh, such a great friend and mentor. I get teary eyed. Um, sorry. Um, and uh, he just, there were so many lessons I learned from him. So let's do this. What let's, there's a lot of CEOs watching, a lot mm-hmm. of business owners watching, a lot of entrepreneurs, soon to be entrepreneurs. You know, we have some 18 year olds watching this, 17 year olds, et cetera. So lessons, if you're, if you're a CEO or you're becoming a CEO, you want to be a CEO. What are some of those traits that you learned from your mentor that would, that would allow our viewers to say, I want to be that type of CEO? What are some of those best practices or best attributes for this mentor of yours? So I think one of the, my first realization was that he built an auditorium downstairs so that employees would not have to go out at night and see shows, see their artists perform. He did it downstairs. He 
everybody in the company got to see the shows and meet the artists, not just the executives or the people working with them. Everybody got a chance to do that. And it allowed you to go home at night. So work-life harmony was big. Work-life harmony was huge. And especially, again, coming from the music industry where I was going to three shows a night in Hollywood, this was amazing. I was shocked. Um, and then you could bring your kids in. You could bring kids in. It was just the having the ability to do your job and not have it in in many cases infringe own on you. your you're right. Yeah, own, you. own you. It's it's living life by design. It is living life by design. And I loved that. The other thing was he really I would say I don't want to say looked out for me, but I think knowing that I was coming into the company as an outsider, um, somewhat, um, and that I was coming from somewhat of a different environment than most people that worked in that company. Most people at that time that worked in that company were from Nashville. It was a job. Um, you know, not a lot of people coming in from other like bigger cities. Um, and he, he just gave me some lessons. He'd sit me down and our time was very quality. The time that I had with him was very quality. And he would tell me, you know, you, you don't, sometimes employees are intimidated to bring up problems in the company to a CEO or a C-suite. And he just came why, out. Why do you think that is? Um, they do, Well, there's a handful of reasons. I think that one, they, they don't want to be, um, they don't want to be the one to deliver the news that there may be a problem. And sometimes they don't want to be the one. Do you, do you think that's because then they'll label that person bringing up the problem as the problem? As the problem, correct? Mm. Yeah, it's sometimes it's that way. I see that. And and then also too, you know, you don't want to um, be the one that is pointing out everybody else's flaws, because you know then it kind of reflects on you sure. as well. But he told me, I can't help you fix these things if I don't know about them. Of course. And so. That to me then allowed me to bring real uh, value to our conversations because he knew when I sat down, I was trying to fix things mm. or I was trying to better the and that, process. And that's the difference because I've, I say this all the time, but if you're willing to bring a problem to me, you should have also been willing and have had the time to come up with a solution mm -hmm. for the problem that you're bringing to me. Right. Anybody can be CNN. Anybody can bring, be Fox News and right. bring problems to the table, but I want people around me that will bring these problems with also a solution. Right. And it sounds like the relationship that you had is, hey, I'm going to address these problems with you, but I also have these solutions that could help fix these problems that we're bringing together because we're a team. That's I'm not just a news reporter here. I'm right. actually a problem solver. I'm a contributor. I'm adding more value than I take away from the company. Yes. Quality. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Um, so, you know, I, when I, um, the woman that I worked with, at e, worked for at EMI um, about 2000 called and said, I'm leaving and I'm going to a digital company and I'd love for you to join me. And I was, I, I loved my job. And at, what did digital mean back then? Um, I had no idea, to be honest with you. It ended up being a digital download company. Okay. Um, at that time, I, when she called, I had never downloaded a piece of music, so I, I didn't know what she was. I didn't know what she was building, but I knew I trusted her. Sure. And so I went to my to the CEO and who I adored and and just loved our time together. And I said, I've got this opportunity. 
And I, his words to me were, if you want to do it, I'm not going to chase you with money. So if it's about the opportunity and not the money, tell me that. Hmm. And, um, so I, I told him it was, I said, I think at that time at 2000, I said, I think I'm going to need to know digital to be a good marketing person. And so I took the leap and it was a startup. It was called liquid audio. Um, and it ended up being the first company that had, um, commercial downloadable albums. Um, and we were the first company to digitize universal's entire catalog. So it was, it was very significant. It was pre Napster, pre iTunes. Um, I learned a lot. I, it was, uh, every day woke up and it was really my first technical job too, you know, in the tech space. Um, but it was great. It was ups and downs, everything you expect with a startup. Um, they were out of Redwood city, California, um, you know, in that Silicon Valley area. And it was, uh, it, it started my expansion and education of how I'm going to do things in entertainment. And so I did that for five years, met a great, great group of people, actually met Isaac, um, one of our mutual friends there um, through a deal that I had done with somebody that he was working with. And, um, and in about 2004, I'll make this one short, but at about 2004, uh, that woman had left and had gone to Disney. And she said, I'm going to Disney. When I get settled in, I'll find you a spot. What was she doing at Disney? So she started at Disney. Um, she was at Walt, Walt Disney Records. Records, okay. And she was the head of sales. So she said, let me get settled in. I'm gonna find you a spot. So I got a call in early 2005 and she said, all right, here it is, but you have to move to LA. You have to work, you know, working out of the studio a lot. So I, <laughs> at this point, I've had my third daughter. She's uh, maybe a year old. And we made a family decision that I was going to go and I was going to get a place there and I was going to commute and back and forth for every other weekend. Wow. So a lot uh, of sacrifice. It was a huge sacrifice, but an amazing opportunity. Sure. I mean, my experience at Disney was unbelievable. And it was, again, that like continued education. Okay, so let's summarize. So we started when you were 17, 18. So tell me all these companies you've been a part of. Just let's, let's so, number them. Um, from getting paid, so Tower Records, okay. uh, EMI, uh, Liquid Audio. Oh, no, I'm sorry. EMI, EMI Christian, Liquid Audio. And now I'm at Disney. Okay. So let's go. We're at Disney. Yes. What's going on at Disney here? So, um, so I was in the sales department and we were responsible. Walt Disney Records is any musical product that has the Disney logo on it. So there were other, some other like radio, um, offshoot labels in the Disney family, but this was anything that had the Disney label on it. Give me some examples. Um, any soundtrack. Okay. Any, so movies. Any, mus- any movies, musicals, um, anything that has the brand on it. So I got crash course in brand management and franchise management. Um, how do you take a TV show and make it a merchandising um, highlight, make it a music you know, piece? How do you sell video on top of that? It was, um, I got it. The crash course was amazing. It was a, one of the 
one of the best companies I've ever worked for. I mean, it, they're just everything, the support, they have a Disney university where you can go and continue your education. Um, it was, and it was also during the time that we had high school musical. Okay. I was going to ask you. Miley Cyrus, yeah. Hannah Montana, Jonas brothers. Um, we had big movies that came out during that time, um, parts of the Caribbean. And so it was, and I, I moved, um, moved up in that group and ended up being um offered the vp of sales for the group so it was one of those the company in itself is you know you're talking about building um, an environment you want people to to work in and have a lifestyle in the disney company was was out for me how would you describe that culture um i would describe it as exciting and inclusive i felt like I, there were so many things that I did that were so enriching for myself. Like I felt like the, 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 the programs that were built were for retention. That's really what it was. Keeping people in the ecosystem because they loved. Was Bob Iger the CEO this time? Um, Bob was. Yeah. And that was before he left. And so this was 2005, um, to 2009, almost 2010. And the, you know, between the university, Disney University, between, um, they had this um, volunteers with an E-A-R-S at the end. Got it. That they, you could sign up for and you would go with executives and everybody. I mean, everybody was included in this. And you would go volunteer in these amazing events that Disney had, you know, been a part of. Um, and the one program that I just, that was just the tops for me was this program called Disney Way One. And you had to be nominated to be in to to be a part of this program, and you spent a whole week going through the Disney um, system. So we went to the set of General Hospital to see how that you know how that worked. We went to ABC News and saw how the news desk worked, and we went to Imagineering to see how they built roller coasters. I mean, it was just it was so interesting. And then the last day, you go to Disneyland, and you get to dress up as a character and go out into the park. So what character were you? <laughs> I was happy. Happy? I was happy. Um, I was a um, dwarf, and they pick you by your your height. Sure. And your, I guess, mostly your height, because the, the you know, costumes are sure, already, sure. Bit, already And you're, you're always happy, right? I, I'm always happy. But it was super interesting. You know, you had to go through training. Like, you had to... You, there are certain things you can do with your hands and you can't do with your hands. You had to learn how to sign their autograph. So let me ask you this. The characters that we see at the Disney parks, is that mainly who it is? No, no, okay, no. Because okay. this program That's is only temporary. like twice. Yeah, it's twice okay. a year. And you only they only let us out there for 10 minutes. So because it's so hot, you know, and you had a handler. So um, and I luckily I was able to tell my daughter. Isn't that crazy? It seems potentially like such an easy gig, but... Oh. The training that you have to go yes. through and even having a handler for 10 minutes, that just shows how like how important that role is for the Disney parks. Yes, it's And it's it just shows amazing. how they, they think about, they think through everything, everything. and everything matters and everything mm-hmm. is designed for a reason. Right. I say this all the time. All systems are perfectly designed to get the results that you want to get. Sophisticated systems, sophisticated cultures get sophisticated results. Absolutely. Lackluster systems, lackluster culture gets lackluster results. So they put everything into the culture, everything into the system. 
and they know exactly what they're doing, yeah. why they're doing it, and how they're doing it. That's that's fantastic. Which is probably why I loved it too, because there's systems and things in place that made things run. So they're dialed, dialed in. So um, so that was for me. And my daughter got to come and actually have pictures of her with me as happy. <laughs> as happy, that's cool. Yeah. So she didn't know it was me. She didn't wait. She didn't know it was you. Mm-mm. No, okay. when she came, she didn't know. That's cool. Yeah, she was three at the time I think oh, cool. and yeah so it was it was really special and um so I for me huge training ground so do you put that on your resume now I was happy for a day <laughs> no I don't I yeah no I don't but I like to tell the story because it's such an amazing program that's, that's awesome yeah and um so uh 2000 late 2009 um now I have a, my middle daughter's in college in back in Nashville or outside of Nashville and we really started to feel the pull again from Nashville. And I um, had a chance to, I got a call for an opportunity to work with Sony in Nashville. And so why do you get all these calls? Like who's calling you all the time? It seems like everybody's after you. <laughs> it's, um, I think it has, it, there's, first of all, music industry small, you know, as big as it is, it's small. I think if you do a good job, people want you on their team. Cool. There's a lot of headhunting. There's a lot of headhunting. And, you know, it's kind of, and for me, when I, uh, I don't know if I should say this out loud. Yeah, you should. Let's go. <laughs> um, I do a lot of, when I meet people, I, one of my kind of thoughts about them is what I want them on my team. Okay. And I just put a little note in my head and what they do and who they are and why. I, what, why. I think that's, I think that's really good. I think that's brilliant. You're always recruiting. I, I love that. I, and not judging, just recruiting. Because you can have great friends that I necessarily wouldn't want them on my team, yeah, yeah. but they're great it. friends. Yeah. So it was, you know, at, during the time I was at Disney too, I actually got recruited by Apple. Mm. Um, they offered me the first role for iTunes in Nashville. Wow. And um, and Disney then uh, actually countered, and is which is when I ended up being the VP. Um, so I ended up staying at, at so um, that phone call caused you to get promoted. Mm-hmm. I, I see you. I see yes. you. Yeah. I like that. Um, so I got the call from Sony. Um, the chairman happened to be in LA at the time I went and met with him. And again, it was one of those moments where I was like, I, I love this person. I would love to work with him. I went to an interview. The job was head of sales for Sony Nashville. So country music. And I went, I like prepped because here I've been working on Disney stuff. I've been in the kids world, right? I've been entrenched in movies and soundtracks. And, and so I like did my research. I, on all of their roster and I get there and he doesn't ask me one question about country music in my interview, not one. And I thought, why is that? Why would he not want to know what my knowledge of country music was? And after he offered me the job, I asked him the question of why he didn't do that. And he said, I loved your skill set and branding and franchise building. I want my artists like Carrie Underwood not to be, this is her next record, but this is her career. This is her, she's a franchise. She's not just an artist that's putting out a record. We want to, how do you long, elongate their careers? And I thought that was brilliant. I was like, I, I'm in. Back to Nashville. So packed it up and moved back to Nashville. Um, and two years into that role, we, I got an email from Sony Corporate 
there was this job, not me personally, it was a, it was a full email to the whole company. There was this job at Sony Electronics that was basically head of synergy. And I had no idea that role even existed in the Sony company. It was a new role and which I'm like, there I am, you know, with the new roles again. And, um, so I interviewed for it. I, I, at the time I had, there was a new chairman at the time and I went to him and I just said, I, I don't know if I'm even qualified for this, but I think I need to look at this. Sounds so interesting. And, um, so I interviewed and the part of the interview is I had to interview with, um, every president or, and, or some C-suite in every division of Sony in the U S so Sony music, Sony electronics, Sony pictures, Sony television, PlayStation, Sony mobile, because you're synergizing with all these departments. Correct. Yes. So that was a long process. And I finally went to the chairman at the time that I was working with and I, or that I was working for. And I said, you know what, this is a distracting, I don't, I don't think this is going to happen. So let's, let's just take it off the table. Um, I, I love what we're doing here at Sony Nashville and, and, um, he's like, actually they called today and they want to offer you the job. <laughs> I was like, Oh, so it took like six months for them to figure that out. And, um, so I moved over, actually worked out of Nashville at an office in the Sony Pictures lot in Culver City. And I had, um, and then I would go into Sony Electronics in San Diego. But um, yeah, it was a new, new role that I was building as I went along. And um, I, I think this, there's another theme here is that I was, I'm going to say I worked, my direct report was the COO of Sony Electronics US. And in all of my, I'll call them bosses, I had stayed in touch with them. I stayed, um, they became peers after I worked with them. And we always tried to figure out things to work on together in the, in, you know, in future, um, iterations, but, um, and you know, that doesn't happen normally, right? Most people, when they exit, they exit and they don't keep those relationships alive. And in fact, a lot of people, when they leave companies, they burn the bridges that they just crossed, which is a terrible practice. So props to you for keeping those relationships alive and well. And as you mentioned, it's a really small industry. Mm-hmm. But why would you ever burn the bridges that you cross with people that you were working with and, and sharing with? It makes no sense. It's been, I mean, and, and thing, the things that have come out of it, partnerships and business in general. A lot of collaboration, I'm a sure. A lot of collaboration. So where are we now? So 2018, I um, went out on my own, started a strategy company. So I do entertainment strategy for entertainment, technology, and food are my main categories. And um, have had some great clients and have learned to um, how to uh, reignite my inner fire, you know, coming out of corporate America and and really have learned my new entrepreneurial skills again so yeah so can you name some of your clients or is it non-disclosure no it's um and so publicly i mean i've i worked with um garth brooks and trisha yearwood um for the last five years which has been amazing and um i have some companies that i advise for uh i sit on the steering committee for tedx nashville um, which has been such a great I mean, just a great opportunity. Uh, and Gab Wireless is also one of my clients. That's cool. Yeah. Okay. So what other interesting things should we learn about Carrie Fox Matoyer here 
as we end this uh, episode, as we end this show. Um, so I think one of the things, this is something that I just realized. Recently, I had someone ask me what was on my bucket list. And I realized I don't have anything on my bucket list. And at first I felt like I had to make something up. And I thought, but why should I make something up if, I d- if there's nothing there? I don't know why there was nothing there, but I've never had a bucket list. So do you have a bucket list? I do, but I'd probably have to put it together. I don't think I have anything like dialed in. Right. That would be your your place. So when I started telling that story to people, I told my husband and one day I was driving in the car and I said, you know something interesting about me? And he said, what? What?" And I said, I don't have a bucket list. Like, is that, am I, is that weird? And um, so I think that that for me was self-realization that I don't need that list to go out and do things that I want to do. Like I don't spend time thinking about the things that I haven't done. I just kind of do it and and not not live that off of a list. So I thought that was interesting, <laughs> a new re- realization of myself. So. I like that a lot. No, I think, listen, I think when you're living your life on your terms, you're almost living your bucket list on a daily instead of something that you're putting off and I wish I could or one day this will happen. I think you're the type of person that your one day is now. In yeah. fact, it's it's always day one for you. This is day one for me. Let's go. It's not one day. So I think that's yeah, I think that's, that's actually I, I like that. And that's maybe why I don't have a bucket list either. There's some cool things that I like to do, but I feel like I'm living my life by design on a, on a daily and I'm working towards that more and more. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there's a long way to go, but you know, I'm striving to to put it one step at a time and let's just go make things happen that we want to make happen and let's not put anything off. Let's go. That and makes me eat, feel better. <laughs> yeah. So even, even now, I think, you know, I think when people, you know, we're around the holidays right now, I think a lot of people just kind of take it easy and whatever. I call it separation season. This is mm-hmm. when you double, triple down and go do the things that others are not willing to do so you can live the way that others can't. Mm-hmm. So again, for me, it's, I think you're living your bucket list every day is what I'm saying. How about that? I love that. Thank you for, I knew that you would get me there. I just, I knew it was like. I wasn't sure, but people think it's kind of weird, but I'm glad that you've, you have made it normal. Thank you. Yeah. So thank you so much for being on the show. This has been absolutely fantastic. So many gems, so many <laughs> life experiences. I mean, are you going to write a book? I don't know. You I need, may. Okay. I may. That's on your bucket list. You need to write a book. <laughs> okay. So you have committed now to the universe yes. that you are going to write a book. So much love to you. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. That's what we have for you today. Thank you for tuning in.